Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this strange and potent time. I'm your host, Brett Kane, and to start this off, I want you to take a moment to imagine in your mind's eye somebody doing yoga. Got it? Well, I'm going to bet that a majority of you envision somebody maybe in a down dog or a warrior two or in a deep back bend. Did any of you picture someone standing in line at the grocery store? What about somebody caught in traffic or arguing with their spouse? If that's a confusing question, that's okay, because the conversation today is all about expanding our ideas of yoga to carry the practice off from our mat and into our daily lives. And in order to do this, we're going to explore the spiritual dimension of yoga, which has been foundational to its function for the past 5,000 years. So whether you're new to yoga or a seasoned practitioner, this is an integral conversation for understanding the deep ramifications of undertaking a practice like this. On the off chance that you don't have any interest in working with yoga, I hope this conversation imprints onto you that everything that comes up in your life is workable and contains a seed of powerful transformation. So to help walk us into these deeper waters, our guest is Jeremy Wolf. Jeremy has been a yoga practitioner since 1998, after he found his way to the practice through the doors of meditation. He then went on to get his teaching certification in India back in 2006. He's then gone on to accrue an impressive list of accreditation and many other modalities, including his specialty, Yoga Nidra. In this conversation, Jeremy's going to share with us some of the fundamental ideas on how we can use yoga to transform our relationship to self, other, and the environments we find ourselves in. So if you resonate with what's on offer here, please don't hesitate to check out his online platform over at jeremywolfyoga.com. He does offer virtual yoga nidra courses, which I'm personally going to be checking out very soon myself. If you want to support this show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and just let me know how you're feeling out there. That really does help. You can also subscribe over at YouTube, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, do the whole nine yards. Any sort of interaction helps me know that you're out there, you're alive, you're breathing, you're resonating, and it really helps fuel the uh, engines of this ship. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. It's a really juicy conversation. So if you feel like you need to take notes, if you feel like you need to rewind, re-listen, I really encourage it because everything Jeremy says here is just so pertinent and really ties in with the theme of this show of really meeting each and every moment as a means to cultivate vitality. So please, without any further ado, kick back brew some tea, do some stretches if you must, and welcome Jeremy Wolf. Okay, so we are now live, Jeremy. Uh, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for giving me some of your time. It really means a lot. Thanks for the invitation, Brett. It's an honor to be able to just join your program and discuss some things yoga. Yeah. I want to say as a brief introduction to uh, that I've had with your work is by living with one of your prior students uh, by the name of Ben. 
who uh, kind of got me tuned into what we're going to be talking about with today's conversation on the idea of just how deep yoga can actually be after years of living with him and having these conversations. You know, he had referenced you quite a few times as really being one of the chief influences in um, kind of inspiring him to sink into the multifaceted nature of yoga. So I wanted to start this off by hearing a little bit about your story and your journey into the path of yoga. And the moment you realized that it wasn't just doing physical poses in a class once or twice a week, but it was something that we could integrate into every moment of our lives. Mm. Yeah, you know, I stumbled, I, I probably had a different entry point, in fact, likely had a different entry point than most people, where my first exposure to anything yogic or relating to meditation or, you know, this sort of internal spiritual quest or self-inquiry process um, occurred by happening upon the practice of yoga nidra. Uh, back in 1993, which to me was this very sort of transcendental, semi-sleep-like meditative, you know, experience. And I didn't know anything about it at the time, um, but I really enjoyed it. And it, it felt like um, like I started to shift internally. The, the level of self-awareness was increasing. My level of patience and life was increasing. And my level of creativity was increasing. Though at the time, I didn't know any of those were directly attributed to practicing yoga nidra. But I practiced it off and on informally for years. And when I went to college, uh, there was a friend of mine who said, hey, there's someone on campus teaching yoga. And it was yoga postures, but it was also a, um, a very uh, deeper devotional practice to yoga and meditation taught by this uh, Hare Krishna devotee. And so we started practicing with him. And um, started to see that wow, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge endeavor into understanding what yoga is, not just as the structure of some sixty-minute process of physical postures and even attention to breath that we move through, but it's really this um, deeper orchestration for how we move through life. And not too long after that, I graduated college. I went and into the corporate world, did that for a while and was kind of yearning for more yoga. Um, I decided to take a break from the corporate world and it was just gonna be temporary. Uh, and I decided along with a, a roommate at the time that we wanted to do a teacher training program for yoga. And it was more just, I wanna see what is this big picture? Um, you know, what what is this big thing called yoga and what can it tell me about um, you know, the meaning of life or, you know, what's important, what, what, what's out there that we're not seeing or giving attention to. So we ended up going to India and doing a teacher training program. And it was a very meditative approach to yoga. I would say very classical approach to yoga. So my formal entry point into even the physical practice was from a very contemplative, meditative and sort of spiritual slant. So that's always been uh, my background. And then coming back to the West, you know, I had friends that own yoga studios and they were like, hey, why don't you come teach yoga here? And I started taking more public classes. And I was like, wow, this is very different than what we did in the ashram back in India. You know, just recognizing the contrast between what had evolved into uh, primarily physical practice and then, you know, the, you know, the other components that were emphasized in the training that I had done. And um, I managed to 
somehow seemingly, uh, you know, start teaching yoga in a way that I felt, how can I teach yoga? You know, I was teaching next to some peers who had been teaching for 10 or 15 years and in a more Western style. And I thought, how am I going to adapt what I learned into this, you know, um, into something that's, that's desirable for what people, what many people are, are seeking here. And so I played around with that a lot and I guess it worked, you know, um, I've never left, you know, the deeper principles of, you know, the meditative practice and um, this deeper potential that yoga has to offer beyond just the physical body. And fortunately, there's always been enough people out there seeking that and interested in that um, to, to support it. Wow, that's wonderful. When you talk about this idea of a deeper orchestration to how we kind of orient to life through the process of yoga, um, I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't really have maybe any experience for that kind of internal orienting process. How would you best describe kind of like what that feels like experientially and maybe what that's bringing you to? Like, is there like a goal that is at the end of this or is it more of a influx dynamic process? That's a good question. Um, it's, it's kind of all of the above. You know, there's a quote, and it may be a little premature, I don't remember the exact words to, to, to offer this quote, um, but Yogi Manmoyan said something to the effect of, um, when we stop using yoga to serve our lives and use our lives in service of yoga, that we can awaken to its stunning realities or potential. And at first you might be like, well, what does this mean? This is some new religion that I have to, um, you know, surrender to or something to that effect. And it's more that yoga is um, this comprehensive process for stepping into a conscious relationship with life through this body, through this mind, moment to moment. Um, it's not, you know, what we call yoga in the West and what we sort of categorize yoga as in the West is something that happens on a yoga mat for a limited period of time, which is certainly one of the components of practice, which enable us to um, explore some of these deeper principles and also um, integrate these deep, deeper principles when we go back out into the world. And so the, the work, quote unquote, or the practice of yoga really never stops because it's about, you know, you could say very simply, um, re-establishing our relationship to life, which is always ever occurring in the present moment. And if you reflect on it, you can see just how much um, the mind spends everywhere but the present moment. Um, contemplating the past, replaying the past, uh, anticipating the future. Arguably, we spend most of our mental energy in one of those two places, which are both mental constructs. Neither one actually exists. And yet we're constantly missing this moment where life is happening because we think we're trying to problem solve it or prepare for it, that we'll eventually arrive in this moment of life someday, while the moment of life is right here sort of waiting us, waiting for us to engage with it more fully. And so you could say that yoga as a practice is a way of re-engaging completely, like 100% participating in our existence while it's happening. And that's at the level of relationship to others, um, relationship to ourselves, how we're tending to this body, 
how we're sort of taking responsibility for the fact that every choice we make has a consequence, right? We live in a world or a universe of cause and effect. And so the more we can become aware of um, what it is that we're eating, what it is that we're thinking, the types of environments that we place ourselves in, the types of relationships that we cultivate with others, um, the type of work or service that we do in the world, all of this is shaping our experience, not to mention defining what our contribution is to the world. And so it's a way of um, bringing attention to really every aspect of our lives um, so that we can be in this harmonious relationship with life as opposed to this um, discordant, a sort of askew relationship with life where we're never really here in the present moment, we're never really honoring what's happening, and we're even much of the time in opposition to what's happening because we're constantly trying to get somewhere else. And I would say in a practical sense, this is what yoga has to offer as a comprehensive picture for um, what it is that we're attempting to do. You know, and all of that is really in service to us, not just being present and not just establishing more harmonious relationships, but in doing so that we're freed from the conflicts and the mind-made problems and self-imposed responsibilities of trying to control things that we can't control so that there's a sense of freedom in re-entering this spontaneous flow of life so that we can actually see um, deeper into the experience of life, deeper into ourselves, uh, and, and have a deeper understanding of what's really taking place here, as opposed to, you know, me being a separate personality with, you know, layers of agenda that I'm trying to fulfill, um, sometimes in conflict with others or the world or even at the expense of others. Yeah. I love that description. You know, I usually ask the yogis that come onto this show, like, could you explain yoga? And it's always such a big question. And I find that everybody ends up having such a different response to it. But the way that you were just describing it feels so resonant with what I've experienced from it and the way that it really bleeds into every moment. And it really asks us to show up to every moment in such a full and complete way. And I really like that you bring up the possibility of someone bringing like the question of like is this like an extra religion do i need to subscribe to some like belief structure and like contort my behavior to some higher ideal that's kind of cast upon me and the way that you kind of diffuse that by saying that there's a process happening in each moment that i feel like if we are genuinely attuned to it's really hard to turn that into a dogma of any kind so do you, do you feel like for the folks who are on the outside who see yoga, who are like a little like averse to it and uh, kind of afraid of like the religious symbolism that kind of is a part of it, um, how would you kind of describe to them that this isn't exactly a religion per se? Yeah, sometimes people will assume it's a religion because often you'll see a lot of the Hindu symbols associated with the practice in yoga studios or in yogic texts and things like that. Naturally, you know, what we call Hinduism and yoga, you know, came out of the same culture. And for many people, there is an interwoven relationship between them um, because, you know, that's, that's their life and that's how they live their life. Yoga itself um, is, you could say, a separate system that is more um, a science. And in fact, yoga is considered a science. 
Some people would argue that, but the reality is we're not using microscopes. We're using our own minds. We're using our own senses. We're using all of our innate faculties rather than discounting them and saying we must validate it collectively externally. In so many ways, that can negate the reality and truth and authenticity of what's happening internally. And it's really meant to be a process. You know, sometimes when I'm giving some of the larger uh, explanations of, you know, the yogic philosophy or their um, cosmology of understanding how the universe is set up, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make the disclaimer at the beginning and say, don't believe anything I say, you know. Don't, you know, there's no need to believe in any of this. What yoga says is try it out, use certain tools, explore through your own faculties, through your own practice, through your own direct experience, explore these principles. And if some tools don't work, try other tools, um, but come to know the truth that yoga claims to be available to every single person for yourself. And so I think that's a distinction that's important to be made is there's no need to adopt any beliefs. It's really, how can I get closer to what is real and what is true through my direct experience, um, as opposed to living in sort of this conceptual reality of borrowed concepts, you know, borrowed understanding, um, but really investigate um, within myself. Has your own yoga journey ever brought you to a position where you've been in conflict with something that's commonly taught, but your experience tells you isn't the actual way? Like, have you found yourself in disagreement or does it usually synchronize pretty well? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I guess one simple way to answer that would be that, you know, we live in a world of separate objects and separate things. And it's very easy to see that the way that the mind operates is to create distinction. It is to discriminate between one object and another, um, which is an absolutely necessary process um, so that we know not to put our hand on a hot stove, so that we know to look both ways before we cross the street, um, that we have to know that um, we have to recognize the distinction between objects we've adopted kind of from a scientific point of view that this separateness is inherent. Although it's, it's easy to see now that quantum physics is sort of weaving everything back together and saying, well, actually, maybe it's not all made of separate parts. And we can see that too very logically, you know, whether it's the recognition that even though your body is over there and my body's over here, well, we come from the same stuff, right? From the same matter, the same earth, the same stardust, however far back you want to go. We're sharing the same resources, breathing the same air, you know, coming into being and going out of being in the same way, all riding on this, you know, blue marble, you know, through space. Um, so it's easy to see the interconnectedness that we share, even though from our narrow perspective and really reinforced a lot by the language we use, that everything appears to be separate and distinct. And I think, you know, this is one of the big pieces that yoga invites us into is to start to recognize our place in the universe as opposed to, uh, you know, I'm trying to work in opposition to these universal laws and forces that aren't supporting me, fulfilling all of my desires and avoiding all of my fears and, you know, and sort of being in opposition to the way that this whole process is unfolding. 
Um, I think, you know, what yoga does, it's, it's a very, it's a very inclusive perspective. You know, for example, I was raised Roman Catholic, um, um, based on my mom. And so that was my first worldview of understanding was, oh, this is, this is what life is about. This is what's happening. This is who I'm meant to be or how I should be as I move through life. And what I find is that, you know, after studying a variety of different religions and traditions, you know, uh, and philosophies, that I feel like yoga has a very comprehensive um, platform for where these different uh, traditions and, you know, even ideologies can sort of fit into it. Or we can realize that when we're standing in one place, we're having a specific view of how things operate. And there's a larger view in which all of these unique views can fit in. Um, so I feel like the deeper I go into yoga, it's not so much in opposition to certain things. Not to say that, you know, um, that everything that's claimed in every tradition is true per se or accurate, but that there's um, this movement toward recognizing um, recognizing truth, what, what truth means in a different way, you could say, um, in a way that's experiential, mm. in a way that's um, not shaped by um, a unique one-pointed perspective, but one that attempts to hold the capacity for all into one model, you could say. Yeah. Yeah, I, as somebody who also has a contemplative practice of mindfulness, um, I my lens is more through the Buddhist lens, something that I feel, I also do yoga as well. Um, and the, the sensation that I get, especially hearing you describe that, is a lot of these practices and the way that we talk about these practices come more of a descriptive rather than prescriptive kind of notion. So it's rather than like saying like, this is how it is. It describes the experience of like making contact with it rather than kind of forcing you to meet it. It, it provides a texture for you to kind of explore. And then you kind of create your own experience within that texture, if that makes sense. That's been at least my experience yeah. of it. Um, they're just kind of easier to find um, channels that you can kind of go through and have your own unique understanding of, um, which is going to be unique to the fact that you were raised, you know, Roman Catholic or whatever your prior background is. Um, so, you know, it seems to me as if it is a really important part of doing the yogic practice to understand some of the philosophy behind it. So you can kind of tap into those textures, which um, we kind of set this up in the frame of looking at the eight limbs, which we haven't really touched on. But what I recognized in my study of this is that the first two things, uh, the first two limbs are the ethics and like the disciplines, which almost seem to be a very verbally transmitted uh, part of the practice. So like, the colorization of the experience before you go have your experience of it. So at what point in your practice did you kind of plug into this idea of the yamas and the niyamas as they're called? And how did that kind of merge with your consciousness? And just what was your experience with that? Yeah, those, those were first introduced to me in my 200 hour training in India. And 
those two, I think, are critical in creating this um, broad understanding and approach to the practice of yoga as being something that happens moment to moment, as opposed to it being something that we start at eight o'clock and we stop at nine o'clock or nine fifteen. And you know, it, they come out of the the Yoga Sutras, uh, where Patanjali, who who outlined these and many other things in the Yoga Sutras, it said he gave us three different paths of practice in the Yoga Sutras. And this one, the eight limbs are considered um, the mild path because it's such, because there's eight points of practice as opposed to three or two in some of his other examples. So there's lots of different entry points for practice. And the eight limbs, I think, are what really swing the doors wide open to these different points of practice, are the yamas and niyamas. Um, because they teach us at one level how to be in conscious relationship to other and to the world and how to be in conscious relationship to ourselves, right? giving attention to everything as opposed to just certain things that we've decided are significant based on our preferences or our conditioning. And so for me, coming into the practice of the eight limbs, or sorry, the yamas and the niyamas, is really, um, it's a way for me to watch how my mind is working moment to moment. And if we look at the, the context in which the yamas and niyamas appear in the Yoga Sutras, which is very much a mind-based approach to yoga, which doesn't exclude the body, doesn't ex exclude pranayama, working with the breath and other principles, but it's very much a mind-based practice. And you know, he outlines, Patanjali outlines in the first couple of sutras that um, the practice is to still the mind so that we can essentially see beyond the mind. And what it is that we're trying to see ultimately is the one who is seeing, right? This recognition that there's a distinction between the part of me that's aware which we might call consciousness, some people call soul, or there's many other terms, purusha and atman and self and being and awareness and all these other terms. But there's, there's a distinction between the part of me that's aware and everything that I'm aware of as the contents of experience. And so in order to recognize that, Patanjali presents uh, a system for stilling the mind why? Because when the mind is active and it's actively moving, we tend to be in a state of identification with the contents of experience. If anger comes through, moves through my experience, I tend to think I am the anger. You know, if uh, sadness comes through, I tend to think I am the sadness or particular objects, possessions, status, etc. So if we understand that the yamas and niyamas are supporting not just how we're being in the world, but a methodology for us calming the mind so that we can experience the world not through an agitated lens of desires and attachments and preferences and fears, but to see things accurately, then we can have a deeper understanding of you know, how to apply the yamas and niyamas. And so the, you know, the yamas really speak to, and they're often taught 
in terms of how to be a good person in the world. And they do, they do certainly outline that, but we can also see that there's an internal component for each one of these. You know, for example, the very first yama, which some say, if we could just master this one, then we could master the whole practice of yoga. If we could just master what's called ahimsa, that would be the only practice. If we could fully embodiment, embody it all the time, that would be the only practice we would need. What ahimsa means is non-harm or non-violence. It means that we're not harming others. And, you know, some, I was going to make a point too, when you talk about how there is this, there is this space allowed for when we go into practice, for each one of us to have our own experience and our own understanding of these truths. You know, there's a lot of cases where, you know, um, the teachers have used uh, negative terms. So instead of saying, you know, love everything or be an expression of love, they instead say non-harming or non-violence. And I think pointing to something in many cases can be more effective than actually declaring what that thing is, you know, which I think is one of the points you were making. So if we say, you know, if we said love everything, well, we all might have very different definitions of love and love is a hard thing to really grasp or understand. We might have to study or read books to understand what is love or what is conditional love, what is unconditional love. But where if we say something like non-harming or non-violence, we all know what that is. We all know, am I, am I expressing nonviolence or am I expressing violence? I think that's very clear and easy to see. So there can sort of eliminate the potential for some confusion. And just to speak a little bit to um, the depth of, of that teaching. So of course it means we're not going around and physically harming people, but it's also implying that we're not verbally harming people, right? It's easy to harm people with our words, with our judgments. Um, and even deeper than that, that we're not even, um, that we're not even, you know, involved in the internal practice of harming people with our thoughts. So for example, if we, if we start to have negative or hateful thoughts toward another person, that creates mental disturbance. Where does that mental disturbance happen? Right inside me, right here. So if the aim is to lessen mental disturbance so that I can see reality clearly, not distorted through my biases, attachments, and fears, then anytime I'm practicing harm, even internally, um, I'm generating disturbance, which is going to distort my view of reality and um, uh, create conflict, certainly in my relationships with those other people because the negative thoughts that I have are really the seed of violence, which can then evolve into harmful language or even harmful action. And so even though at one level it's, you know, to be, uh, to be a good person, you know, nonviolence non also implies friendliness, compassion, kindness, right? So it is implying that we're kind to others, because if I'm not kind to others, what happens? They'll get triggered. They won't be kind in return. And guess what? Now I'm back to more disturbance, more mental disturbance. So it's always reflected back into how is this affecting my internal state, my internal process, and my internal practice. Yeah. 
I'm curious for the folks who, because I remember a time before I really started practicing anything, before I had any sort of spiritual inclination, the level of neuroses that I was kind of living my life through was one in which I couldn't even see the quality of my mind to know that it was disturbed. And there was also this like sense of momentum to that, that can really become massive. (laughs) So for me, I hear what you're saying with the tuning into the quality of mind and seeing how each of these non things like non stealing and um, telling the truth, how it does create disturbance. But for the people who have existed within that continuum of disturbance for their entire lives, how do they create a space of reflection to actually contact that spatial quality, the non agitated nature of their actual mind is it almost feels like the yamas and yamas are kind of like the flower that comes from the practice that grows the roots that grows the stalk that but it's also the doorway so yeah does does that track it does um and i think you know it's interesting if when people come to the teachings of the yoga sutras and they're like oh you know we we obtain yoga through the stilling of the mind well (laughs) i'm out it's not going to happen for me not sure that's possible i have no idea what a still mind means except in deep sleep perhaps Mm -hmm. Right, which is one of the great gifts that we get, hopefully, every 24-hour cycle, um, to be free of the mind's activity, to be liberated from the confusion and the conflict that's created through it. Um, It's true. Um, For most of us, we live in a state of constant reaction to the world, where we're always reacting for or against. It doesn't mean that I'm irritated all the time, although arguably, if we look more closely, we'll see that there is a level of irritation or discontent present almost all the time for many of us. And to interrupt that, you're right. We've lived in a world that is overstimulated. And when the stimulation no longer gets through, what do we do? We keep turning up the volume. You know, I sometimes look at, you know, I've got a nine-year-old son, and I notice (laughs) if we go back and watch cartoons or movies from when I was a kid, and then we watch something modern day, um, the distinction in the level of action and stimulation and the quickness of the dialogue the character movements, the scene changes, all of it is fast. It's rapid. While maybe at one level we could argue this is strengthening our ability, perhaps, to process information more quickly, um, it's also destabilizing the mind. And there's lots of different you know, teachings that we can get into that look at... Um, how much we do to destabilize the mind. I mean, the reality is we're training the mind all day long, almost every moment of our waking day, perhaps every moment of our waking day to move. Not only to move, but to move quickly from one thing to the next, to quote unquote multitask, which is you know, proven to be in a very effective, if very ineffective way of accomplishing anything. Um, as opposed to thinking we're getting a lot done at the same time. All of this destabilizes the mind. And if we're wanting to get to, you know, even to the point where we can't just wait in line anymore, or we can't just sit and wait for the bus anymore, it's go straight to the device, more stimulation, more information. 
we're robbing the mind's ability to have those moments of relief and spaciousness, which now seem almost impossible to obtain or access, like you're saying. Very simple ways of starting to build this capacity to access the space, the stillness, the the peace beyond the mind's activity, which tends to cloud or be a projected layer onto every moment of experience, is to create interruptions in activity, to practice simple states of non-doing, whether that's sitting on your porch and just listening to the birds or having a cup of tea or taking a walk in nature without your phone and without you know, planning your grocery list while you're hiking, right? But just to be present with your environment. All of this is creating relief. And a lot of this has to relate to um, how we're creating an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system where we're perpetuating a sympathetic state, which is really an active problem solving and in heightened expressions, uh, an anxiety state. And when we're not creating the moments of rest throughout our day, just to stop, just to be, not to process other information, not to look for new methods of distraction, but just to be, um, we're not giving the relief to the nervous system that can allow the mind to disengage. Now, all that being said, For most people, sitting down to meditate and trying to get the mind to be still is going to be a seemingly or nearly impossible task initially, unless there's some sort of preparation. And what the yogis realized is that while Patanjali outlines this um, very much mind-oriented, mind-based practice, um, which culminates in meditation, Um, There are other ways that we can work with, some of which, of course, he mentions in the Yoga Sutras, other ways that we can work with creating this capacity to shift our mental state. We know that um, there's a direct relationship between our breath and our minds. The type of thoughts we're having will impact the way we're breathing. The way we're breathing can impact the type of thoughts we're having or the quality and content of the mind. So one of the things to do if we're looking to approach a meditative practice is to actually prepare for the meditative practice. You know, I try to emphasize to people all the time that the practice of concentration, which is difficult at first for many people, is step one of meditation, right? So that your mind keeps wanting to wander and that you keep inviting it back to the object object of choice. That's the, that's the beginning of practice. But even before we go there, if we can refine and change the quality of our breath through some pranayam practice, what we're looking to do is to start to remove these unconscious disturbances, tensions, agitations, levels of anxiety that are reflected through the breath. When we change how we're breathing, for example, if we're looking to create more of a relaxation response or parasympathetic response, then we can emphasize slowing down the exhale, even to the point where it's twice as long as the inhale. This sends a very specific message to the nervous system that says, slow down, calm, shift from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state into relaxation. This starts to slow our heart rate, right? And so this will also start to calm the mind so that we can build a platform for recognizing that there's more happening here than just this 
this cinema, as some people call it, or this drama, this movie that's playing through the mind as, you know, the active sequence of one thought moving into the next over and over and over. So I usually tell people, you know, let's work with asana, you know, certain postures and certain breathing techniques, which cue the body toward a state of relaxation, which enable the mind to slow down enough that people can start to step back and have more of a um, contemplative or reflective uh, relationship to their process. So that when we come to our yoga mat, we can do lots of asana and very active poses without bringing attention to how we're practicing the poses, the quality of our effort, the quality of our breath, we're likely to do what we do in the world, practicing all our, you know, neurotic tendencies in the same way on our yoga mats. Yeah. And so it's really about interrupting that in breath is one of the quickest ways and most effective ways that we can all access for interrupting it. Yeah. I love that reference to the autonomic nervous system as a body worker. You know, a big part of my job is helping people shift to the parasympathetic nervous system and get them into that state of relaxation and something I notice as uh, I teach mindfulness meditation, and it's one of the the big things that a lot of people struggle with when they get into a practice like that, is they start to really recognize that momentum. Because the practice of sitting meditation, it helps create a container where you're able to actually see what is going on in your mind. It has that punctuation element of, all right, I'm going to do a thing now, and then you just immediately lose it. And for a lot of people, that's the first time they ever contact the speediness of their thinking minds. And I often find that with a lot of people, especially if they have any unchecked traumas, it can be really painful The the because that really is kind of what motivates a lot of speediness from my experience is kind of the desire to avoid the present moment because there is a lot of tension. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety, which the world is currently amplifying and, um, you know, really reaffirming. So do you feel like breath is the best way to maybe temper that immediate meeting of that anxiety so that somebody can really like ease into the practice? You know, for someone who has heightened anxiety, you know, and has, you know, like you're describing, um, a level of fear around being present because of the level of discomfort that arises when being present. I would even say, um, rather than just working with breath, work with the postures, the asana and the breath together. Because one thing we're trying to do is regulate the system to having a different experience, right? So we can start in a very active state where people might be, and then we can turn down the dial toward a parasympathetic response just by selecting specific tools like working with forward bends and inviting people into longer holds in forward bends, which are very grounding. Combine that with a prolonged exhale, for example, and we can start to have a good impact, significant impact pretty quickly. Um, and then building the capacity to bring neutral attention to experience and to be present with what's present, right? Like you teach. You know, not present to the, the inner dialogue and the projections of value and fear and all of that onto experience, but to actually just get in touch with experience, which in the body is sensation. And to recognize that sensation itself is neutral, right? It exists along a spectrum of intensity, 
but sensation itself is neutral. It's the label or the story that we attach to it that makes it negative, that makes it um, something we want to resist or something we want to avoid. And through simple asana and breathing practices, we can start to build people's capacity to feel what's present rather than think about what we think is present, right? To just get in touch with what is here. And instead of being a con in a constant state of for or against, right, reactivity to it, we give it permission to be here as it is. Because a lot of the, you know, it's like when we sit down to meditate, if we haven't meditated for a long time, or if it's our first time meditating, or we're early in the practice of meditation, we sit down and it's almost like our mind gets even busier. All this stuff starts to bubble to the surface. Things that were being suppressed are now freed to move. The reality is we want them to move. We want this inner pressure to be freed, to be released. And we can build our capacity, certainly in our asana practice, to instead of being in this agenda mindset and in this conflicted mindset about experience, to enter a place of neutrality where it's like, what am I feeling? What does that feel like without the label? Just to be there with it, breathing with it, present with it. And what we're doing is creating this uh, opportunity for these inner patterns, these inner pressures or agitations to not just come to the surface, but actually be released, that they're no longer, be, no longer being repressed or suppressed. And so I think, you know, the combination of breath and asana um, can be more effective because we're very literally um, releasing the patterns of tension that have been built up in the muscles and the joints um, so that we can start to feel a sense of freedom rather than this anxious sense of contraction that we might be in the majority of the time. Yeah. I don't know about your experience or that of your students, but I found that when I've entered into those states of kind of neutral awareness, sometimes things do come up that are quite painful, maybe something from my past or worry about the state of the world maybe. And what I found to be really interesting from that neutral standpoint is that when you're able to not resist it and really just feel the full quality of it, it like the resistance turns into more of curiosity and it actually becomes something that deepens my awareness and my quality of wakefulness. And there is like a slight sense of joy that comes from it of just like really being human, really being grounded in the present moment of what's arising. And I'm kind of curious if that's something that's often talked about in yoga, the conversion of kind of difficult things into opportunity to practice deeper and actually be a liberative energy in itself. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, absolutely. You know, one of the, that's one of the deeper teachings around, um, you know, one of the uh, niyamas, tapas, you know, which is this practice of discipline. You know, tapas is said to be more of a psychological heat or a spiritual heat, which is really implying that there's um, a friction between who you were, right, who you believed yourself to be, what your habitual way of relating to experience has been, and your capacity to be free from it, right? We're all conditioned by our past. And our past experiences are constantly informing how we're showing up to the present. And so when we react, what are we doing? We're reacting some old programming, whether that's to keep us safe or to avoid threat or achieve something we want or attain something we want. 
um, for example. But when we practice neutral attention, we're basically practicing non-reactivity. And what we're normally doing is identified with these old stories and beliefs that have us in a state of reactivity of this is how I need to show up in order to either get what I want or avoid what I don't want. And when we practice neutral attention, what's arising could be this old programming, this old memory, this trauma, whatever it is, which can have some level of intensity of sensation or an emotional quality perhaps that accompanies it. And when we give it space to be, to express itself as it in the, is in this moment without identifying with it, that creates a friction. And that friction initially, in some cases, like let's use the example of if I get, tend to get really angry and when someone triggers me, I yell at them and I really just let them have it. And I'm aware that I do it and I want to stop doing that. Well, let's say someone triggers me, the intensity of that experience starts to arise. I'm ready to just let them have it and let them know how wrong they are and how right I am. And yet I don't do it. And I just stand there in the intensity of that pressure, this inner heat, this like, oh, non-reactivity. And this would be a more intense example of, you know, something, you know, you were alluding to, but I don't act, then we're actually burning up. We're actually, the teachings say we're burning up that karma, which is that pre-programmed way of showing up to the present moment mm -hmm. so that we're actually creating freedom in that moment from this old way of being. We're actually deconstructing our old programming so that we can relate in a new way, so that we can be free from it. And so absolutely, and it doesn't have to be that intense moment, right? That's the most challenging moment, perhaps, to, um, to be non-reactive in, you know, when anger arises. But absolutely, there's the freedom that accompanies it, which is, you know, I sometimes define tapas, which is this type of discipline, as um, the discipline that sets you free. Mm. Right? And so we can have ex an experience of that being liberated from it. And even just sensing that, oh, before I was in constant identification with the anger, with the emotion, with the trauma, with the memory. And when I give it space to be, I start to realize that there's a spaciousness around it. Just like in the room, there's a spaciousness around all objects. I can start to sense that there's a spaciousness, spaciousness around every emotion, every sensation. And then, you know, we're really starting to create that distinction uh, in that moment between awareness and experience. And that can be incredibly freeing. Yeah. It's interesting because it points to the nature of freedom, I find to be a really fascinating conversation with a lot of Western-minded folks. Um, you know, oftentimes we think of freedom as the ability to do things, the ability to express freely, the ability to just act out your impulses, like to have the most freedom is to just do. But really what I've come to realize through meditation and yoga is that freedom is the ability to have restraint, the ability to turn the dial down, to close the valve so that you can actually control whether or not something is actually coming through. But it just seems like we've kind of gotten that backwards, you know, like that's kind of like America, land of the free, land of, you know, right. do whatever you want as long as you have the money to do it, you know, and that's just an interesting kind of flip of the idea that actual freedom is discipline and narrowing in a sense to experience a greater degree of space. It's a beautiful point. And, you know, 
yam, like the yamas and niyamas, yam means to restrain. Okay. You know, and the niyamas self-restraint. And the restraint is not, and some people can can misunderstand, oh, this restraint is denying ourselves of the pleasures of life or of being human. What we're actually doing are denying our pre-programmed ways of being that are constantly shaping our beliefs, perceptions, choices, and actions in every moment so that it's not my past determining how I show up to life here and now, but it's me being able to step into that fully um, lucid conscious relationship with life now in a way that um, is free and, and is rich and is real. Yeah. So this is going to be a very loaded question. I apologize in advance, but is what you're describing, is that samadhi? Is, is that the enlightenment that is like the final limb? Kind of that relationship, that loose, actual free, expansive state? That's a big question. Yeah, that's a really I'd put big you question. on the hot seat. Because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to talk about samadhi. So um, in terms of framing it, let's say, based on the conversation that we're having right now, you could say samadhi would be that final tool of meditation that would take us beyond um, all of our samskaras or karmas, the, the unconscious forces that are shaping all of our perceptions, choices, and actions to where we're finally free of those forces. And then in coming in, in, in that same moment would recognize a deeper dimension of who we are beyond the personality, the mind, the collection of experiences, traumas, preferences, all of that, that package of the personality or the ego to recognize the deeper dimension of who we are, that which is not changing moment to moment, but witnesses how all the contents of experience are changing moment to moment. And with that knowing, with that recognition, bringing that freedom back into the human experience where I'm still in a body, I'm still playing the role of Jeremy Wolf. But it's not the unconscious forces of my past that are, that are shaping all of my choices and actions. It's direct response to what's showing up in the moment rather than reactivity. So I'm curious about, you're saying like free from our samskaras, free from our karma. Does that mean that we don't experience them at all? Does that mean that they're gone or does it just mean that we're free to not react them out like is there ever going to be a time when i just don't have any neuroses <laughs> well yes yes there would be a time where you know the the imprints from past experiences as memory that shaped the neuroses and that created the neuroses would still be present right for example you'd still have your memories but the charge that accompanied those experiences, you know, that was a reflection of fear or attachment, for example, would no longer be active. Mm -hmm. It would be neutralized or like they sometimes describe it as um, these would be burnt seeds. The seeds of memory would still be there, but they would no longer have influence um, over present moment experience. So the neuroses would never be there. They would, you know, the level of insecurity and instability would not be playing themselves out. 
though you would still have that archive of memory and experiences. Is it to reference, right? You'd still know, look both ways before I cross the street. Yeah. But even if you were hit by a car, you know, at a young age, which created a nervousness every time you crossed the street, that charge would be neutralized. There would be no nervousness imposed on the experience. So would it be possible to get to that state of having those burnt seeds without going the, through the process, process of tapas, without having to re-experience them in some degree? Is there a way to like bypass facing that pain of your prior charges? Or is that like integral? Do you have to walk over the coals to get to the other side, so to speak? You know, it's kind of the difference between... Um, there's a couple ways to answer that question, you know, in, in my understanding and based on the teachers I've studied with. Um, no, you don't have to process it all. You don't have to relive it all. You don't have to re-experience it all. You don't have to make friends with it all. There are practices that work um, at the level of our vital force in our body, prana-based practices, which are designed to burn up. Um, these programs, you know, these restrictive conditioned patterns where it's not a psychological, it's not a, um, it's not a self-directed psychotherapy process of deconstructing or dismantling um, these things, though that can also happen. Um, it's not a requirement. There's ways to do it with your breath, with postures and through different types of Kriya practices, you know, um, involving um, various types of meditation. Then there's also the practice of yoga nidra, which is, you know, something that's very close to my heart and, and so much so because it was what opened the door to all of this for me in the first place, um, which is a practice where we're actually letting go of being in the process of identification with all of the contents of experience and memory and all of that stuff. And we're just letting it fall away, right? So as opposed to actively transcending it or working with it or burning it up through certain practices, we're actually just letting it fall away um, by letting go of our identification with it. Because we have to identify with or against it for it to stay. And when we no longer do that, then, you know, the, the charge releases. You know, I think it was Swami Satyananda who said it's like a bubble at the bottom of the ocean coming up to the surface and popping, releasing. The charge is neutralized. So there's very simple, very passive ways of doing this that, um, and it can occur without us even knowing it. We don't have to know, oh, I finally, you know, broke that old habit. I finally let go of the emotional grief around that past situation. We don't even have to know that it's happening in the moment that it's happening. And then, you know, the other way to sort of uh, point to a process, so to speak, would be you know, the non-dual perspective, which says, rather than working through and burning up all of this and disidentifying with all of this, turn your attention around toward that part of you that's already free, liberated, peaceful, happy in this moment, you know, which is this quote-unquote self that we're looking to yoke with or merge with through the practices of the yamas, niyamas, eight limbs, yoga sutras. And, you know, they say, rather than go through this elaborate process, turn around and realize the, the you that 
will be free is actually already free. It's the part of you that is not confused with being the memories, the beliefs, you know, um, the habits, etc. That feels like a very pertinent uh, period on this conversation. So I want to really just say thank you so much for your time. It's amazing how this kind of like worked out after we talked about a year ago and then just spontaneously this arose again. It's uh, really a wonderful thing. So where can people... Thank you, Brett. Yeah, of course. Uh, Where can people plug in with you um, for those who want to continue going deeper and are really resonating with the way that you speak and teach? Um, They can find me on my website. It's simply jeremywolfyoga.com. And that's wolf with no E, just like the animal. And on there are all of my events. I've got audio recordings linked to that, meditations, yoga nindras, things like that. Wonderful. Also my email. So if people want to reach out with questions, um, I'm definitely open to that. Wonderful. Well, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. I genuinely really appreciate this. So uh, we will catch you hopefully next time. Thanks so much, Brett. I appreciate the time this morning. Of course. All right, my friends, thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. That was today's episode. I told you it was a juicy one, so hopefully you were able to glean something useful from it. Uh, I know I sure did, especially on that. When I re-listened to edit, I was like, dang, I could pull a quote from pretty much everything he's saying. (laughs) So that was Jeremy Wolf. If you want to stay in touch with what he's got going on, he's got a pretty active Instagram plus jeremywolfyoga.com. Like I said, he's got those online yoga nidra courses, which I'm getting really excited to participate in. So maybe I will see you there. If you want to support this show, consider uh, giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, following us on Instagram. And uh, overall, if you want to support the show, take care of yourself and just do well, right? Like that is the ultimate uh, offering you can give to me is to just embody deeper and really be a beacon of goodness in your community because the world needs it right now. And if I could just affect one person with these offerings, uh, mission accomplished, I would feel so good about that. So let me know how things are going, interact, uh, let's connect, let's see what's going on. And uh, yeah, that's what we got going on this week. So we will see you in another two weeks with another amazing episode. I'm so excited for the next guest. You will definitely recognize him if you've been following the show. Spoiler alert, it is the return of the very first episode's guest. So check that out as a precursor to next week. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Bye.